Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome back to the Talkback series in the month of January, looking at Inappropriate Conversations number 150. This is part three. And I'll get quickly to it, since part two ended on a bit of a teaser, uh, introducing or questioning the idea of whether or not I've been right all these years by suggesting that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality in any of his opportunities to speak to the issue in the Gospels. I raise the question not because I have any doubts about the answer, but because I think the possibilities here are interesting. It is either true that Jesus did on one or maybe two occasions, depending on how you interpret parallel passages in scriptures, address directly a person who was gay, or at least bisexual. Or it's possible that Jesus did not encounter such a person, but in the midst of certain situations, absolutely had golden, served on a platter opportunities to speak to the issue and chose not to. And that's interesting. We'll pick up there with part three of the Talkback for Inappropriate Conversations number 150. Thanks for listening. Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 7, verse 10, Gospel according to Luke, says this, starting with Jesus speaking, A healthy tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a poor tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by the fruit it bears. You do not pick figs from thorn bushes or gather grapes from bramble bushes. A good person brings good out of the treasure of the things in his heart. A bad person brings bad out of the treasure of bad things, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do what I tell you? Anyone who comes to me and listens to my words and obeys them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man who, in building his house, dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. The river flooded over and hit that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But anyone who hears my words and does not obey them is like a man who built his house without laying a foundation. When the flood hit that house, it fell at once. And what a terrible crash that was. When Jesus finished saying all these things to the people, he went to Capernaum. A Roman officer there had a servant who was very dear to him. The man was sick and about to die. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to take him and come and heal this servant. They came to Jesus and begged him earnestly, This man really deserves your help. He loves our people, and he has built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the officer sent friends to tell him, Sir, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come into my house. Neither do I consider myself worthy to come to you in person. Just give the order, and my servant will get well. I too am a man placed under the authority of superior officers, and I have soldiers under me. I order this one go, and he goes. I order to that one come, and he comes. And I order my slave do this, and he does it. Jesus was surprised when he heard this. He turned around and said to the crowd following him, I tell you that I have never found faith like this, not even in Israel. The messengers went back to the officer's house and found his servant well. There's a parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a Roman officer met him and begged for help. Sir, my servant is sick in bed at home, unable to move and suffering terribly. 
I will go and make him well, Jesus said. Oh, no, sir, answered the officer. I do not deserve to have you come into my house. Just give the order and my servant will get well. I, too, am a man under authority of superior officers, and I have soldiers under me. I order this one go, and he goes. I order that one come, and he comes. And I order my slave do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was surprised and said to the people following him, I tell you, I have never found anyone in Israel with faith like this. I assure you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the, king, at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But those who should be in the kingdom will be thrown down into darkness, where they will cry and gnash their teeth. Then Jesus said to the officer, Go home, and what you believe will be done for you. And the officer's servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus is saying that there are some people who will actually be in the kingdom, ready to be served this feast at the day of judgment, and they'll be thrown out into darkness. And there'll be great people coming from elsewhere, outside of Judaism, from the east and from the west, who will have a seat at that table. And he's basically saying that this man will have a seat that is worthy of greater honor than anyone Jesus found in Israel. A man with greater faith that he is not found anywhere among the Jews. This is a Roman officer. This is an occupier. This is somebody whom the people, while they might have respected him more than a lot of the other Romans, that he had actually had a big heart and done right by the people that he was an occupying force there from. The other thing kind of hidden in this passage, though, is the great probability that this Roman officer might have, like other Roman officers, engaged in homosexual acts. He makes the interesting claim of being somebody who had a servant who was very dear to him. A beloved slave is perhaps closer to a word-for-word -word translation. And there are many people who believe, it's controversial, of course, but there are many people who believe that this, might, this servant of his might have actually been the kind of servant where, well, let's call it a servant with benefits, where perhaps sexual favors were exchanged between them. We don't know it because it's not stated. But Jesus here once more has had an opportunity to denounce homosexuality and has chosen not to do it. He could have called out the difference between this beloved slave and other servants of other Roman officers who were different in some way. Because either... This term, beloved slave, was referring to this servant with benefits, this quiver-bearer type fellow, this shield manager, who was uh, you know, also willing to perform other services on behalf of, of his captain. But either that was true, and Jesus completely overlooks it, is absolutely irrelevant, and is instead taken by the strength of this man's faith, or Jesus had the opportunity here to call out, that this beloved slave was different from every other beloved slave you're going to find in this hideously immoral Roman army. Yet, Jesus did not. I believe that the Lord of all things knew we'd be talking about these things in this day and age. That we'd be having this precise, inappropriate conversation at this precise time, and yet he, the Lord of all, left the matter open to question, and I'm left to wonder why. Where God has left a period, I will not put a question mark. Certainly. But where God has left a comma, I will not put a period either. Or wording it differently, where the Bible is silent, I will not shout. There are a lot of people in this day and age spending a lot of time doing a lot of shouting about who's allowed to be a Christian and who's not allowed to be a Christian. 
Let's take all the questions of sexual behavior and sexual orientation out of these parallel passages between um, the section in Luke chapter 6 and 7 and the section in Matthew chapter 8. Just take all that out. You're still left with somebody who's an enemy, who was an outsider, who was a foreigner, who was an occupier. And Jesus is saying, this person has a place of honor in heaven. It's not outness. Jesus is preaching a gospel of inness. And therefore, every time someone uses the phrase that uh, no one gets the Father but by me, as some sort of concept that Jesus is preaching a gospel of outness, they need to correct themselves. They are not reading the Bible for all it's worth. Who is selectively reading pas- passages of Scripture now? I'm talking about people who are reading not even the entirety of John 14, verse 6, as it's stated there, and in the context in which it's presented just inside John chapter 14. And those people would have the temerity to say that I'm misreading Scripture because I'm willing to interpret John 14 in light of things that Jesus said and did elsewhere in Luke 14, in Luke 6, in Luke 7, in Matthew 8. How about what Jesus said in John chapter 10? Let's start at the beginning of the chapter, work our way through verse 18, and see if we can find more from Jesus about this concept of inness versus outness, because eventually it is going to make a case in our hearts and hopefully in our minds as well that Jesus is preaching a gospel, that the one thing we can do to offend him more than anything else is exclude people in his name. If the Holy Spirit is calling people to ministry, a Roman centurion with a peculiar love relationship with one of his servants, for example. Who are we to stand in his way and give him a book of rules from a set of laws that he personally told us he was going to fulfill? When he says, not one dot or iota is going to go away until all is accomplished, he is telling us that, hey, once it is accomplished, it is gone. Certainly that was the impression of his apostles, the real apostles, not the sad excuse for apostles we get today. John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am telling you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who goes in through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep hear his voice as he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought them out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow someone else. Instead, they will run away from such a person because they do not know his voice. Jesus told them this parable, but they did not understand what he meant. So Jesus said again, I'm telling you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All others who come in before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the gate. Those who come in by me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes in only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. I am the good shepherd who is willing to die for the sheep. When the hired man who is not a shepherd and does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and runs away. So the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. The hired man runs away because he is only a hired man and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, as the Father knows me and I know the Father, in the same way I know my sheep and they know me, and I am willing to die for them. There are other sheep which belong to me that are not in this sheep pen. I must bring them too. They will listen to my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. 
the Father loves me, because I am willing to give up my life in order that I may receive it back again. No one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own free will. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it back. This is what my Father commanded me to do. Jesus is speaking here. Let there be no mistake. Jesus is speaking here when he's talking about other sheep. In Paul's mind, he was talking about the Gentiles. Perhaps Jesus shared with the woman that he met at the well that maybe those other sheep are the Samaritans. I would suggest to you that Jesus is telling us in the passages I've just recently shared that some of those other sheep are people who have been excluded from the church due to their sexual orientation, due to their race, due to some other parts about them. Have they used illegal drugs in their past? Do they have tattoos? Have they either had an abortion or encouraged a woman to get an abortion? Have they been part of a clinic that performed abortion? Whatever the reasons are that we exclude people, we are so short-sighted. We are like the sheep inside our own little Christian pen. In some ways, no smarter, no more intelligent than the disciples were who perceived that Jesus had come to the Jewish sheep in the Jewish pen. And Jesus had to tell them that, hey, this is not the only place my flock is gathered. I'm going to come here. I'm going to call out my sheep. They will hear my voice and they will follow me. But there's going to be other sheep and they are going to become one flock, not two separate but equal flocks, one flock. Hello, Dave Prowse here. And when I'm not performing my one man show, the true voice of the dark side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! This notion of Jesus creating one flock is crucial to us. As we come to terms with some of the, some of the language you see in the Old Testament primarily, but it's, it points in the New Testament, and certainly the language you hear from a lot of Christians today about this notion of a Christian nation, this notion of the chosen people. We've already covered that Paul has made really clear the only concept of chosenness that is truly biblical is Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's seed. He is the descendant. He is the chosen one. And the only way to be chosen is to have faith in Christ. But the interesting thing, as you explore this just a little bit further, is this notion of whether a national identity is relevant anymore. When Jesus takes the sheep from the Jewish pen and merges them with the Samaritan pen, and later, through Paul, merges them with the Gentile pen, we're no longer talking about a Jewish state or a Jewish nation. We're no longer talking about a Christian nation for the exact same reasons, and the Christian nation is such an irrelevant concept that it doesn't matter whether it's the United States or some other country. It's, well, it's pointless. Jesus is not making multiple pens, each with a, with a national identity. He's talking about merging 12 tribes and those reached by the 12 disciples into one multitude, mathematically 12 times 12 times a thousand, a number that John of Patmos in the revelation of St. John the Divine describes as a number too big to ever count. Now, 144,000 is not a number too big to ever count. But maybe 12 times 12 times 1,000 means something more symbolic than that. And perhaps it means that there is no such thing as national identity within that group any longer. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, it's the passage I use to talk about Jesus establishing this concept of a relationship. On the left side of the political spectrum, 
I tend to focus most of my criticism on the religious right because, frankly, the religious right is doing the most wrong right now. But on the left side of the political spectrum, you hear people just suggest from time to time that this concept of having a relationship with God, this concept of a personal relationship, is no more emphatically claimed in the Bible than the idea of the Trinity. I might be willing to smile and nod at that concept, because the Trinity is not emphatically noted either, and yet Jesus does talk about himself and the Father and himself as the Holy Spirit in an objective way. So the, the Trinitarian idea is flowing throughout the Gospels. And likewise, this notion of of any one of us having a relationship with, with God is right here in Mark's Gospel, picking up with verse 27. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his fathers and with the holy angels. So what did the apostles do with this interesting exchange, with this very direct piece of communication in Mark's Gospel, where Jesus is shown as kind of executing both sides of his of his approach. In some cases saying, hey, don't tell people too explicitly that I'm the Christ. But on the other hand, telling people that any one of you must pick up your cross and follow me. You can't hide under the robes of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Sadducees and how well the temple is managed is not going to provide you any salvation. It's you and me. It's what does it profit a man who gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It doesn't matter how good his country is. It's you and me. Whoever, which one of you individually is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. And I I fear that really too often today in Christianity, we have Christians who are hiding behind the collective in exactly the manner that Jesus warns us here not to do. This notion of, of well, we've, we've got to be a Christian nation, or we've got to be the moral majority, or we've got to be the born-again evangelical. We've got to be this group so that I can hide my unworthiness inside some bigger group that is going to save me just like the nation of Israel was exalted by God throughout the Old Testament. Well, i got news for you. On the cross, Jesus changed everything. Everything. He got rid of those laws. He got rid of that notion of a... Uh, of a special chosen people at the same time. What did the disciples do with this, though? How did it ultimately play out? Well, 
I'm going to pick up in the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verses 16. And this is the period of time when the disciples are organizing themselves and being sent out as apostles to form what we would call the early church. This is several months after Jesus, uh, not just his death and resurrection, but his ascension. Jesus has gone, the Holy Spirit has come, and this is what the disciples, and now because now we call them apostles, same folks by and large, are doing with their calling. Picking up with verse 32. The group of believers was one in mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they all shared with one another everything they had. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God poured rich blessings on them all. There was no one in the group who was in need. Those who owned fields or houses would sell them, bring the money received from the sale, and turn it over to the apostles. And the money was distributed according to the needs of the people. And so it was that Joseph, a Levite born in Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, meaning one who encourages, sold a field he owned, bought, brought the money, and turned it over to the apostles. But there was a man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property that belonged to them. But with his wife's agreement, he kept part of the money for himself and turned the rest over to the apostles. Peter said to him, Ananias, why did you let Satan take control of you and make you lie to the Holy Spirit by keeping part of the money you received for the property? Before you sold the property, it belonged to you, and after you sold it, the money was yours. Why then did you decide to do such a thing? You have not lied to the people. You have lied to God. And as soon as Ananias heard this, he fell down dead, and all who heard about it were terrified. The young men came in, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife, not knowing what had happened, came in. Peter asked her, Tell me, was this the full amount you and your husband received for your property? Yes, she answered, the full amount. So Peter said to her, Why did you and your husband decide to put the Lord's Spirit to the test? The men who buried your husband are at the door right now, and they will carry you out too. At once she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, saw that she was dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The whole church and all the others who heard this were terrified. Many miracles and wonders were being performed among the people by the apostles. All the believers met together in Solomon's porch. Nobody outside the group dared join them, even though the people spoke highly of them. But more and more people were added to the group, a crowd of men and women who believed in the Lord. As a result of what the apostles were doing, sick people were carried out onto the streets and placed on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And the crowds of people came in from towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were sick or who had evil spirits in them, and they were all healed. If nothing else, this strange passage from the book of the Acts of the Apostles gives us a sense of just how seriously the apostles took the idea that individually we are accountable for our actions before God, that there is no longer this notion of a chosen people, or a group of temple priests, or a Christian nation who can speak for us, either to do good, to cover up for our sins, or to make mistakes for which we'll be judged. This idea that if two people who are in love with each other, who happen to be of the same gender, are allowed to live peacefully 
in what we assume to be a blissful relationship, that all of us are somehow doomed because the Lord is going to cast his spell of anger upon us. It's inconsistent with what Jesus taught in the gospel according to Mark. It's inconsistent with the stories that are related afterward in the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus has told us, you are accountable before God before your own actions. And you are accountable before God for your own beliefs, too. If I think of it, when I get to the different drummer segment, I may come back to that specific point. Because our different drummer this week, I think, turned and really opened up her relationship with the Lord on that very point. I can't blame the pastor. I can't hide behind the words of a book. I am accountable to the Lord for what I believe and for what I do about it. Because Jesus said, if any one of you wants to be in relationship with me, pick up your own cross. No one's carrying it for you. Music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.